0: This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Bro? You
1: look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven either. Robbery Homicide's taking it. Out, Give me
0: all you got! This and- Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And joining me for the 134th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus is someone who's actually worked extensively in the theatre. And I didn't actually know that about this person. So what happens, as with all the guests on this show, is... I know people's work or I know them from Twitter and I see someone whose critical voice or, you know, their sort of perspective on the world and I think, I want that person to be on this show. And that is very much that for this new guest. Um, they're a film uh, reviewer for, apart from working in the theatre, they're a film reviewer for a site called um, au. So if you're in Oz, you're, you're most definitely familiar with them. But this particular... Uh, this particular guest on this show um, very recently wrote uh, a review of Alex Garland's Annihilation that has finally come to Blu-ray, and if you're in Australia, you're devastated uh, because you never got to see it at the theater. Um, and and I, I just want to read you a line from this review by my guest before I fully introduce you to them, because it, it's something that I, when I read it, it was the clincher for me getting him on this show. He says, talking of Annihilation, This film is as about a complete cinematic experience as you could possibly want with breathtaking cinematography and jaw-dropping design, astounding sound design, and a hypnotically mysterious score, all directed with startling clarity of vision. It's a film that wants to engulf you, swallow you whole, and spit you out the other end. That is exactly how I feel about Heat. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce you to one of uh, a new guest and a new friend, Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Lamon, welcome to One Heat Minute.
1: Thank you. That is one of the most flattering introductions I've ever been given in my life. So I'm like, I'm glad no one can see me because I'm bright red. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's a lovely way to be introduced. And thank you for having me. You're welcome. And
0: <clears throat> welcome to. I've thrown you in it, Dan. I'm sorry. <laughs> because this is a really. You know, this minute of the film was already going to be a, a significant minute, was. A minute with a relationship in this movie that is, you know, very divisive. And Dan had not actually seen Heat until I asked him to do this show, which is all the more awesome to get him for this particular minute. So what we're gonna what we're gonna do before we dive into Dan Uh, dan seeing heat and being convinced to do it and so quickly turning around to go and buy heat and watch it and all that stuff we're going to quickly dive in to the 134th minute if you don't know what minute it is we've just seen nate say one of the most awesome lines ever in the history of cinema it's free country brother and then he's uh asked Neil to call him back at 9pm to make sure that the door is still open, the window is still good, the out is still safe. And when here we are, we arrive with Neil, killing time on the outskirts of LA with Edie and making one final plea for her to come away with him. If we ever would believe that Neil McCauley would actually escape. <laughs> um, that, is a great, uh, that is a great what if. So Dan and I are going to watch the minute together now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it.
1: luck you want to walk you walk right now or on your own
0: on your own you choose to come with me
1: and all I know is all I know Oh, just before he really kicks it in <laughs> just before he really kicks it in oh that's one hell of a finish
0: <laughs> a oh uh this is the play i actually there's sometimes it's both devastating but your reaction is perfect because it's like oh
1: god damn it it's because i've got because I, I have the fox release the the timing for the minute covers that exact conversation. Yes. Almost like with like a second to spare. Yes. And I knew as I was watching, I was like, I bet this, is, I bet this isn't right. No. I bet I'm going to miss out on the kicker at the end. That's fine. There's enough there
0: to talk about to begin with. I'm sorry. The The next guest on the show, uh, Mel, renowned film critic for The Age, Jake Wilson, is going to have mm. to pick up exactly where we're, about, we're leaving off right now. So, Dan, this is the first time you've seen this movie. What, yes. Let, let's talk before we dive into... Neil Macaulay's reaction here and sort of get deep on this analysis you you said one thing in in a little exchange that we were having over messages you know you were kind of taken with the emotional complexity it kind of hit you you know kind of hit you unexpectedly you just weren't expecting it from this big movie
1: yeah I mean the thing that and it really it really kind of all comes I think, comes to a head in this particular minute, actually, which was when you said that this was the one we, that we'd be looking at, I was really excited because it kind of... It was the mo- one of the moments where it, the film really took me by surprise, which is the idea that you have this kind of perfect mechanism of a heist thriller, um, and we're so used to seeing that mechanism entirely about the, the, the way the narrative works. Like, the, A leads to B leads to C. Um, certainly in the, the post-Nolan... Um, kind of cinematic language. But the thing that took me surpri- took me by surprise with this was the little moments where it would allow a tremendous amount of depth within the characters that you just wouldn't expect. Like the idea that, um, particularly with Neil, that there is a push and pull with him about whether or not, well, what kind of life he actually does want reflected in both the way that he Talks with Edie, the way that he talks with the rest of his crew, the way that he manipulates, the way that the crew interact with each other and with, interact with their partners, um, and that by the end you end up being, you, there is that that um, you don't know how you're supposed to feel about either of the two men. You don't know, you don't really know whether you want Vincent to succeed or Neil to succeed. I remember distinctly when it came to the climax, sitting there going, "But I don't know what I want to happen right now," <laughs> and that was really exciting because I usually, I have to admit. I haven't seen many Michael Mann films. I've seen Collateral and in, and The Insider, but at a very young age, like I would have been in my teens when I saw The Insider. And I actually had tried to watch Heat previously, but I was still in that really lovely period post The Dark Knight where everyone you just thought The Dark Knight was this impenetrable masterpiece, <laughs> but you started to realize that it's great, but it's very flawed. And so I started watching Heat and I was just so taken aback by the similarities between it that i just turned it off i was like i'm not in the mood to watch if i want to watch this kind of movie i want to watch the dark knight um and so the, the, the fact that michael mann's um i think you talked about it in another episode his coolness um he's like tremendous uh the, the way he controls every aspect of what it is that you're experiencing i found quite cold yes. like for me the cool kind of came out as a bit cold so the surprise for me was the degree to which Within that, that perfect like that perfect clockwork of the way the narrative works and the film works, that he would just dive occasionally, and so that every time you came up for air, those those mechanisms made more sense. Those mechanisms um, resonated more. Um, so yeah, I and mean, yeah, I, I, it was it, it took me by surprise. I was surprised at how affected I was by it, and how much the characters and the relationships stuck with me to the point where, in the time since. I've more thought about the characters and the relationships than I have thought about the story, about the heists or the set pieces. Of course, they're fabulous, but yeah, it's the the way that these men interact with the people around them that really has stuck with me.
0: I think you've, you've synthesized a great message of what I've discovered in this show as well, which is there's kind of these... And I love the way that you described it, which is that you've got the mechanism like the clockwork. And, and I think because you even talked about post-Nolan language, it reminds me of a Nolan thing, which is like you've literally got time ticking over and you're just dipping in and out of these like things that are slightly bent out of time. They're, it's this weird temporality when you dive into these relationships. And this whole film, You know, people talk about the heist, people talk about the set pieces, people talk about the coffee conversation. The <laughs> sinew of this entire huge mechanism is just emotional... Encounters. It's people mm. give, uh, giving meaning to the method
1: of, of the
0: whole film. So, yeah. Which
1: is, something, which is something that in the period, the dark night up to, the, you know, Rise's period of Nolan's career, it was really – I had a similar response to watching this that I had to watching Die Hard for the first time, which was only in the past year I watched Die Hard for the first time. It was one of those things of going, oh, whole decades of cinema <laughs> make sense now yes. because they're all trying to do this – just not as well like and it was <laughs> similar with watching heat of going oh now all of a sudden everything post 95 in terms of those 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 crime epics now makes a lot of sense because that's all they're trying to be is this and then kind of failing in the process and, and Nolan's felt like Nolan's um like heat obsessed period is so great right. with the clockwork and so kind of it doesn't get the emotional intensity. That's because which Chris he, Nolan oh, is a robot. <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> well, I would, I would actually, this, this is getting completely off topic, but I would actually, I've actually thought that his films have become better since he finished the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah. Only because he kind of, it you notice there's a kind of freedom to the way that he makes, he mm. tells stories. And so yeah. finally it's like his voice is coming out as opposed to just being I think redu- I, um, derivative.
0: I think we can be fair though with Chris Nolan. And this is the thing with hate is, and it comes up really strong in, 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 in um, actually, let me just have a look. This is the weird thing of sometimes like, recording these episodes out of order, Dan, and for people listening. Immediately preceding this episode, you would have heard an episode with Cam Williams, a mm-hmm. Melbourne-based film critic, um, um, folks who are listening. Uh, and if you haven't, you need to go back and listen because Cam coined a phrase which um, I'm going to use from now on, which I can use. He's told me, but out of order, I've had it floating around my brain and I've had to do everything I had can to stop it. He calls it heat blocking. He <laughs> says that any person who ever says this movie is inspired by or is a homage to or is, you know, my version of heat, you've immediately blocked your movie from being good. Like you've undeniably, yeah. <laughs> you've cut its legs out from under it. You're not going to be heat. You're going to be shit. And, yeah. you're, you, and, and I think... Um, if anyone's listened to the whole one-hour examination of Den of Thieves with Katie Walsh and I, you would see that there are real pretenders out there that just try and ape it. And where, where they change it, sometimes the muscle flexes or the or the BS is just terrible. But the credit where credit's due, this is the talent of Chris Nolan as a filmmaker, is the best heat movie that's not heat is The Dark Knight. Yeah. Like to the letter, <laughs> it's to the letter. Almost at points, to the letter. <laughs> to the letter, right? It's it's so terrific, and I'm a monstrous Batman fan, and uh, I'm a huge Dark Knight Rises fan. Um, for a weird, for the for the for the strongest reason that to have the handicap of no Heath Ledger and still deliver a film that is so tremendous, I think makes you a master. Um, So, but I think you've got to give credit where credit's due there. But yeah, I totally get you about films making sense. Like people have had an, uh, you know, die hard to your point. I would love, I wish I was with you to watch that because I still have that same thing. It's like, I still get frustrated when people are like, Oh, skyscraper, it's just like die hard. I'm like, stop it's mm. we've done it it's 2019
1: well, I just think, stop I, I think it comes down to the fact that it's so clear because i this is i'm just embarrassing myself continuously only about four days beforehand i watched the godfather part two for the first time oh my goodness i promise i like film i promise <laughs> i do but it was a similar it was quite fascinating to watch the jump from one to the other because it's so clear with heat that michael mann doesn't have a roadmap he can follow there's a certain degree of finding a way to tell this kind of story in this kind of way at this kind of scale with this level of ambition where there's nobody there's no other film he can use to find his way in the same way that everyone post heat in all the films that now suddenly make more sense you can tell they're going oh but heat did this it followed this path man used these techniques and he structured it in this way and the relationships functioned in this way um while with this there is there are moments in it where it just seems to be kind of reaching beyond its like grasp to try and do something it doesn't know if it's going to be able to achieve. And nine out of ten times achieves beautifully, um, but it doesn't know it's achieving it. And sometimes <laughs> I think that almost makes – that's what is the difference between a good film and a great film, is a film that's trying something where it doesn't know if it'll succeed, but yeah, it's, it's trying anyway. With an ambition. You know, I yeah.
0: – I know you as a guy who frequently, you know, this is people who regularly watch films and are, you know, reporting on them and being hired to, you know, to write about them. You know, you see a plethora of films and you see all of the patterns, you know, you see all the patterns appearing over and over again. And I, an ambitious failure any day over yeah. something that is just you know, this is the whole argument between respecting a, a Marvel movie or respecting a DC movie, where it's like a DC movie, the, the the failures they can be quite ambitious and admirable yeah. in their failure. I, and I would and yeah. in Marvel, it's just sometimes you're like, yeah, it's okay. Like it did everything fine. And and I, the, the, the the score of the fine Marvel movie is there.
1: Yeah, I would I to be honest, I would happily talk more about Batman vs. Superman. Any day over <laughs> any Marvel film, if only because it's so fascinating how much of a failure it is. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's just, um, oh, but, you know, but
0: particularly okay. when one of
1: the people in the title, the
0: the whole story about the main what is titular character in Henry Cavill's Superman is just garbage, and it's just <laughs> yeah. really like it's just really a glorified gift wrap for the like for a bat for a Batfleck movie that's really kind of badass. Um, yeah. But you know, you said something as well about the Godfather and with Heat, and I think it's like um, it's. You know, I, I said this in a, another podcast. That's I think, both, both preceding our episode and coming up, I go. There's sometimes there's genre killers, and you talked mm. about The Godfather Part Two, and just The Godfather's was a genre killer for gangster movies. Like people just trying to reach or riff or to to scale or to copy, they just didn't have, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's audacity and just
1: the weird yeah. cocktail of. And those films kind of, even the second one, even though it has the confidence of the success of the first, is still trying something it doesn't know if it, that it doesn't know is going to work. It's, it make, it's, it's highly making it ambitious. He's making, yeah.
0: a, he's making a European art film. <laughs> he's making a European art film with, like, the biggest budget that's ever been given to any Hollywood movie, like, ever. And, and that, he's mortgaging his house for it and he's doing all this crazy stuff. And it's just, it's a story about, you know, fathers and sons echoed through time you know the first movie is like shakespeare it's it's mm. you know it's almost um it's almost like king king learish you know you've got heaps of he, heaps of those things and that was you know his aspiration to make a mafia movie about you know that's sort of unexpectedly doing all those things with um succession and all those mm. challenges and and making it over time and and the and the second one is so much
1: more ambitious. Um, it's like Tolstoy. Uh, it's oh, like it's that's trying. Right. It, or it's, it, it deals with the one thing that the first one can't deal with, which is time. time. Yes. The idea of, um, of like, as you said, like things echoing through the ages. And there's just nothing. Like, I, I think, think what, what my knowledge. I mean, I'm not that. I don't know, know that much about crime cinema between The Godfather Part 2 and Heat. But it does feel like. That, that heat would represent one of the most one of the only significant moments where that form, which had kind of been cemented by those films, was able to shift into something new.
0: Yeah, still I being think,
1: novelistic, but into something. Yeah, fresh. There's,
0: there's kind of two there's kind of two films I'd call out that I would say have got the scale and 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 have that heist mechanism of that time. And it's like Dog Day Afternoon, French Connection are kind of the yeah. seminal moments of that, and it does take you know. And then you you've kind of got. Reservoir Dogs but Reservoir Dogs is that beautiful sort of palimpsest of like everything it's that Tarantino like it's referencing of references of referencing it's it's his talent for doing that he's a bit of a genius you know pretty undeniably for, for that. but that specific style is something he is both so archetypal and so different at the same time mm. that it's like the only thing that it's self-referential to is like all of the art that has poured out of Michael Mann's brain since he yeah. started making television and film because he's just got this this, you know, authorial voice that's so cool. Dan, I want to thank you in advance because <laughs> one of the things I've wanted to say so desperately, so long, um, uh, and, I've you know, I've wanted a forum for it and you've created an opening. I didn't realize I wanted to say it on this show, but I will now. Oh, God, what have I done? What have you, I done? <laughs> you've talked about, like, jo- we talked about genre killers with heat and things like that and it takes a long time for, you know, and I think Dog Day Afternoon, like I just said, was a movie that so many films just couldn't even wrap their head around how mm. this film could exist in its organic nature, and it takes you know, it's decades.
1: still hard. It's I still hard up. to really get your head around oh something that that it functions at all because yeah. it really shouldn't. It, but you sit there going, "But it's spectacular."
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's no other word for it. Spectacular is the word. But I mean, we can finally thank in this podcast Francis Ford Coppola for the Star Wars prequels, right? Because the reason we can is because George Lucas is such a fanboy of his very good friend Francis Ford Coppola that the reason that he even went back and tried to approach Anakin is because he was so desperate. He wished, he dreamed that he could make... A Godfather Part Two, but he just couldn't. He couldn't do it. Oh my god! And and so every single time I watch The Godfather, I go, "Thank you, Coppola, for making George Lucas." He wanted to tell a father and son story. Like he was desperate for it. He had a little bit of succession, and and you know had the hero's journey in the first one. And he thought by doing the prequels, again three ambitious failures, to make his sort of Godfather Part Two. Um, a version of the Star Wars universe. He got close, certainly, as far as the ambition and the scale, mm. but he just didn't get... He didn't get what the anchor of, like... He didn't yeah. get what the anchor of the present time in The Godfather does to amplify everything that's happening in the past because it's being stretched and echoing through movies at the same time. It's, like it's, mm. it's not only a future of The Godfather and the past of The Godfather, it's intersecting. It's, like, recontextualizing things that happen in that movie, so all this power and things like that he just didn't quite get it but you know that's i think i think you know there's and that's why when these movies come out these godfather part twos and these diehards and these french connections and um and uh, and dog day afternoons and then Heats, there's just not like they just exist and people try desperately to replicate them and you're just like stop you can't you can't do it
1: i just can't believe i just heard somebody put The Godfather Part 2 and the Star Wars prequels in the same <laughs> sentence. I mean, I've been walking around for the past year talking about how Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again is essentially the Godfather Part 2 of the Mamma Mia-verse. But, you know, putting it with the Star Wars prequels, that is, I'm impressed. And I'm look, and, look, impressed I, would, and I would just
0: at least say that the Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again one makes sense because some people like it better. And well, the, yes, the the, the real rule, the real rule is that uh, and, and I'm going to steal a line from the, you know, Bill Simmons and they, uh, Bill, the Bill Simmons team, they did the Rewatchables podcast and they were talking about The Godfather because they were doing a Rewatchable episode on The Godfather Part 1 in, in teasing a Godfather Part 2 episode in the future. And they said The Godfather Part 1 is the more Rewatchable film, but yeah. Godfather Part 2 is a superior film. So you might say that for Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia 1 might be the more Rewatchable, people go back to it because it's original, but Mamma Mia, here we go again, could be the superior film out of those two.
1: The more structurally bold, I feel. It's both. <laughs> it is also bold. both a prequel and a sequel, and uh, it is. You know, it's it. Like I remember when I watched the Godfather Part Two, I was like, "Oh my god, it's the same thing. It's two characters at the same point in their lives going through similar experiences, except in one it's about you know killing people, and the other one it's about singing ABBA. <laughs> I mean, it's very similar, obviously. Both. So similar. I'm sure <laughs> so many people have turned off this episode, being like, "We thought you were going to talk about this minute, and now you're talking about Mamma Mia." No, no, they, this if is. Have, if we don't like
0: if, if they're still here. They've listened to way weirder digressions. <laughs> way weirder. That's what this show is a home for. It's anchoring us back to this minute. But to get not quite to this minute, but let's get back to this movie. You watched it like a couple of days ago now, basically, right? Yeah, not even a week ago. Not even a week ago. And um, very luckily, as we record this, um, and you guys are going to be hearing this episode drop only five days after we record it on the 29th of March, um, the 22nd of March, I had the distinct pleasure of seeing heat um, at the Randwick Ritz, a little... Um, boutique sort of art deco independent cinema in Sydney and they do a lot of uh, 35mm screenings Um, very recently they've had like Alien and Aliens and um, The Abyss Uh, I think they've got Children of Men coming up which I was like
1: ooh so good oh I, should, I think I need to come to Sydney. Uh, that's, I would, I would, I would die to see that on the uh, big screen
0: yeah, again. Uh, me too. So at least it's like, oh my god, I haven't seen that since it came out, and but I got to see Heat in 35 millimeter and uh, very recently, so I've got it fresh too, and I had such a pleasure because I knew that I was talking to Dan who 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 had only just seen it, and I saw it with three people who had never seen the movie before, and uh, it was such a it was such a like a hyper tense experience and this specific minute 134 to come back to this minute it kind of made a a lot more i don't know if it's like it made more emotional sense or it just helped me reappreciate it in the context of the film is in the minute immediately preceding this neil's face when he's talking to nate john boyd's character his face when he says he sort of inquires about chris and he says like he's gone and, you know, before we even hit record, um, you know, we we're talking about that great line, it's a free country brother. Mm. Um, and his face there, Dan, I don't know for you, but it's like, it, it's his same level of emotion, that level of hurt, that level of like rudderlessness you know the the weird fact that he's sort of controlling all of these elements around his life and now like he literally is the loner like he's not orchestrating this crew and their relationships well, his or anything anymore family
1: his family's basically fallen apart yeah. he doesn't have i mean it's so there's so much of a sense in in the film of him cult, like pr- protecting and collating the people around him and that Edie kind of sits on the outside of this because he's not sure whether or not he wants to bring her into that family. But like, no, that, like that, that dinner scene where he has them all together. But by this point, you know, one of his crew, Trey
0: is dead and he's had to essentially euthanize him. Michael's dead because he didn't follow the program and uh, in the middle of the heist and didn't help them get out. Chris
1: is in the wind, you know, Charlene, essentially his son, basically like the kind of son figure within (laughs) the family. He's now lost that. Um,
0: and he's in this moment and so for me when i watch this minute and we appraise it i've got such a fresh experience of being in like this dark room crowded dark room with a bunch of people and feeling the emotional trajectory of the preceding minute into this minute so fresh and so i think in isolation the the, the both minutes that we're sort of we're tackling here um you know, they they sort of feel like they might be incongruous because especially you go to a completely new scene, you go to a complete darkness, Time, a passage of time has passed, but mm. it really is so immediate. Like, he's mm. just been to Nate's. Like, this is just yeah. hours later. They've just been sit, standing on the side of the road, literally killing time. And how mm. long did they stand here in sort of awe and silence and watching, and again, De Niro's just one of the most fascinating actors, just allowing emotions to pour out of his face and not say a single word. Mm. And in this moment he's just letting it pour out and going I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. And for mm. for me that line is is this whole minute. It is just an unbelievable he doesn't know what he's even doing anymore and this is the last person
1: that he's kind of in this moment he's reserved to the fact that if mm. she walks she walks it's done. And it's it's such a payoff. I remember because I'm very distinctly remembered, like, this was one of the moments in the film that really stuck with me. And in fact, when I was watching it, I thought, that'd be a really great minute to talk about. I wonder <laughs> if we'll get to it. But it's because I also remembered the moment earlier in the film where he's talking to Chris and he says to him, you know, if you feel the heat, it you just drop. You just drop everything and you go. It doesn't matter who you're with, where you are, what you're doing, what a relationship is, you drop it. And I remember thinking there's going to be some sort of payoff with this, that you've got this philosophy in your head that you believe in so strongly and at some point in this film, that philosophy is going to bite you in the ass and you're going to have to renege on it. And the satisfaction of this particular, both the preceding thing of him saying, that doesn't work, it's all fallen apart, the family's crumbled, and then, him ha- and then for him to admit that for him that doesn't work, was so enormously satisfying on an emotional level in the arc of this character to go, okay, this character's now in the most vulnerable place. I now don't know what he's going to do. I now don't know what he's going to
0: do. And you're so right. It was so great about those two scenes, though, and this is what's great about those echoes. This movie has mm. such beautiful echoes, and if you go back and watch it again, as I'm sure that you will, and uh, anyone who's listening is like, the match cuts, the thematic echoes between two scenes, the laying the groundwork in a non-obvious way. Like in in... Mm. in either both stylis- stylistically ambitious directors, like I, I talk about Edgar Wright and I don't mean to say it in a slight as all, at all. It's just like Edgar Wright is a really great guy to lay a foundation of an early scene and pay yeah. it off for laughs. Like he's so yeah. great at doing that and it, and makes it really fun and just watch Hot Fuzz. Like just, you know, yeah. just he does that like 50 times in that movie over and over again. It's such a joy. But in Heat, Michael Mann does it in a really organic and subtle way. And so in this moment, Again, it's De Niro sort of facing someone and you don't... And again, what's so good is you don't actually know what Edie's going to say and you don't know what Chris is going to say in that scene, to be honest. But the Mm. one consistency in both of these is that Chris says, for me, the sun rises and sets with her. And so you know what Chris is going to do. Like It's like Mm. you you might control him, where's Charlene? Think about that. Like Neil's still trying to influence him, still trying to do it in every scene. But right now, as you said... The family's been disbanded, and he's in the most emotionally vulnerable point. And I think you need him to be unpredictable. I think that whatever stuff it does to our emotion, that turmoil that it creates inside us, Mm -hmm. is so goddamn essential to this movie. Because in the run up for the next 30 minutes that are just blistering, they're going to fly past. You know, that unpredictability keeps us completely holding our breath for, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 minutes in a row.
1: And man really frames it very nicely to make it clear to you that this is, from a visual standpoint, an enormous turning point in the film. I mean, re watching the minutes, both before we started and watching it again, like the thing that really strikes me about it is it's ostensibly three shots, maybe four, depending on the cut from um, Neil and um, and oh, John Voigt's character as he goes to the other car, then it cuts into, into his. House. Essentially, it's three shots, and that is the, like it's a moment of complete stillness in a film that is usually so erratic and usually so uh, rhythmic that it just kind of stops, mm. lets the moment happen to prepare you for where it's going to go. Um, the other thing that I found really fascinating in thinking about this particular moment is, and you're uh, you talking about the sense of mirroring within the film about how the three. Th- maybe three, probably more. So the two major relationships in the film mirror one another in terms of the way that there's always in each of the major moments between um, Vincent and Deborah. Is that is Justine? Justine. Justine. Deborah. Yeah. Um, Vincent and Justine and Neil and Edie. They both they they kind of have system moments within the film. Like yes. this one to me always sits very closely as similar to the actually the companion scene to the Ralph scene yes. in that it's a moment a turning point in the relationship and the difference between them of one relationship is built entirely on truth and that is the sense that you know um, they you know, Vincent's very open about exactly what kind of relationship he's offering um, Justine knows it, they're in conflict over the way they navigate it, but it's a relationship built entirely, into- even the moment with Ralph is an admission of truth I'm cheating on you, I'm having re- I'm having an affair with another man, but I'm not hiding it, everything is truthful while this one is based entirely on a fantasy yes. of um, I'm offering you this way of life, I hardly know you, um, I'm giving you all of these options, but I promise you something that I can't, he cannot guarantee he can offer her so one is built on truth one is built on fantasy and then at the end of the film they have their sister scenes again which is you know um justine and vincent in the in the hospital and neil and edie in the car when he leaves her behind that that's the way that the, that these two relationships have to resolve one another one is you know has a level of honesty that's fr- frightening and brutal but the other one has a level of dishonesty um, Emotional dishonesty—that means it cannot complete itself. If that makes sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I, lo- and I think you know, on more watchings, I love your thesis because it's so, guys, on point. Is, you know, Justine needs to disband the fantasy that they're living because Vincent's living in a fantasy. Justine's a truth teller. Like they, Vincent thinks you know he's on the downslope of his marriage. He knows that that's the truth. He really does. But he has to Mm. fantasize that he can still have some semblance of normalcy around his team when really his obsessive bent with his profession is driving everything. So she has to drop Mm. truth bombs on him. Like I have to demean myself to get your attention. I have to throw something at you that you can't ignore in this fantasy. I can't. I, I can't get you. Let you sweep it under the rug. I need you to be present. And, mm. and I think what's so great here is I've literally called in, you know, if you, if, if you get to listen back to this show, I called it Neil and Edie, I call it fantasy land. Like that's, they're yeah, living yeah, in fantasy totally. land. And so it's just, it's uncomfortable, but it's also, God, it's fun. Like if you've ever had a mm. relationship at the beginning, like anyone who's in a relationship, the first few days you meet someone, they strike you. It's unbelievable there's like you can get swept up and th- they're on their third date <laughs> and yeah. he's about to take her overseas <laughs> after it's committing, committing a bank robbery so you it's get real. and the truth the truth moment you know where Justine has to be the one to give the truth moment before and Vincent actually he no to Vincent's credit because they get to share it the women give them the first truth moment where Edie tries to run away um, to give them that you know she she completely kills Fantasyland and Justine cheats on him with Ralph but then Vincent, she asks him, Well, do you ever think this could work? And he goes, No. You are you know, mm. I'm what you're you know, you you're right. All I am is what I'm going after. So here's mm. the let's take that out. But and, and in this moment it's Neil just going, Nope, I'm not getting back in the car.
1: I've got to go. Mm. And it's but you get the sense even with the moment with Vincent and Justine that even though he says, No, this can't work, there's still a part of you goes, But I think it might because he said it because he articulated it clearly and put his cards on the table um, in a way that, I mean, Neil puts his cards on the you table. Wish, and-
0: you wish it is right. But I think that yeah. in that moment, it's like the fact that he's accepted it. Uh, just before yeah, this. So yeah. Just before this podcast hit record, Dan and I were talking, and Dan asked me, you know, what the hell are you gonna do at the end of this podcast, as most people do? And what I said is I said this podcast is my Neil Macaulay, right? It's 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 at the end of it, I'm gonna to have to shoot it, <laughs> otherwise it'll never end. It's
1: such a horrific analogy.
0: <laughs> but what but dad said she is firstly he said it's horrific and he was like, Oh, that's so tragic. And I'm like, Yes, that's what's tragic. Is it he knows. He knows yeah. in that moment. That's what's devastating. And I think what's so conflicting and so wonderful about this entire sequence is that even when they accept it, and he's at his most vulnerable, and everything feels like like it's had some closure. And I know it does trail into the next moment, because in this moment we are seeing him at his lowest. The Mm. thing that I love that you said is, the vulnerability is so real and so true, but it makes him so much more unpredictable. Yes. And, and yeah. so we have that massive question mark that when this scene happens, it might cause discomfort or conflict or like satisfaction. But at the end of it, we don't know that what the hell's going to go on. And Vincent's been mm. telling us, oh, Neil's gone, Neil's gone, Neil's gone. And we've seen him exact revenge and we've seen him do this other stuff. But, you know, that lack of
1: certainty is still so perfect in this minute. Mm. And there's... That's, I mean, it's, that's if you're looking at the scene purely from his perspective. And one of the things I was really, when I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, what happens if you think about it from her perspective? Because also the way that man frames her mm. is so specific. Yes. Um, in the fact that she's, I mean, she's not in focus, but she's in the foreground. Visually, she's actually larger than he is, yes. which puts him in, obviously puts him in a vulnerable position, which makes us empathize with him more. But then if you think about the sense of, of, um, if you look at it from his perspective, he's being very honest with her, he's telling her how he feels, and he's never told anybody in, within the context of the, of the film, but has never been this honest with them. And then you look at it from her perspective, and you start to look at the structure of his argument, in the sense that he goes, I don't know what I'm doing, um, you don't know what you're doing, your options are you can leave, or on your own, you can stay with me. And then he throws in the butt, but i don't but I've realized that I don't want to live without you and it's the from if you look from through his eyes that's really beautiful and really lovely and from her eyes or from an outside of from her um, on her side of it it's so manipulative it, yeah, it's, gives kind, her the, of, it's it, kind of it's it. a further level of entrapment that just keeps <laughs> entrapping her whether or not he's aware of it or not, but the sense of if he had gone um, if he structured the argument of going i All I know is that I don't want to be alone and I want to be with you. So, it's up to you whether you decide that you can go or you can stay. That would be saying, this is my argument for what I think should happen, but it really ends up being your decision. The other way, and that kind of gives her a sense of agency. The way he does it, though, is to go, these are your options, but this is the consequence about if you don't choose the right option. But if you don't choose the right option, I, I don't want to live without you. Yeah, exactly. And so, in a way, it's... And what we know of her... And, like, I would... I was I was listening to one of your, the earlier episodes where there was that question that came up. There was a question that came up around: Is he in love with her, or is he in love with the idea of her? Yes. And I and I, I actually think that's a question worth asking for her as well, because it is only basically the third time they've ever seen one another. Mm-hmm. And realistically, as much as yes, this is um, there are you know this is a heightened version of reality in it being a narrative film. They're both such lost people and these two lost people sit next to each other in a coffee shop and find each other. And so, what he's selling her is an idea. We're going to go to New Zealand. We're going to...
0: Actually got to laugh out loud in the audience that I was with because New Zealand might sound like... It might have in ninety five sounded really exotic but, you know, it's the... You know, for the worst possible reason, it's like the number one news story. So
1: people know a little bit
0: more about New yeah. Zealand. And if you're an Australian, if you're watching this in Oz, you're like, I know New Zealand's like.
1: Yeah, it's and- like when they when when in a film goes, we're going to go to Australia, and you're like, but why? 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 What, where that? in Australia? Where are you going? <laughs> yeah, let's list. Give me a list of cities, and we're going to vet them because right now your question, your you your decision making is thought, where are you going? Um, where exactly? Are you
0: going?
1: But it's And so, what he's, he's selling her is the idea of a relationship, which I would almost argue my reading of their relationship was I always thought you're in love with the idea of her, you're not in love with her, and, and she's, she's in love with the idea of him and not in love with him. And
0: I think what's really good is that on the show, we've covered – we've talked a lot about Neil's, you know, physical, um, you know th- – especially in the preceding minutes we've talked about neil's you know physical presence being you know really intimidating in those moments and there's this kind of semi-stockholm syndrome thing happening and in this moment you're so right there is like the flavor of agency here you want her to say it but This is what you've got. The reality of the situation is exactly to your point, Dan. There's two really desperately lonely people. And, you know, she's way more candid about it than he is. You know, he is desperately lonely. And what's been masking that is this family. So when you strip away all those elements and he's, he's, I mean, you can't be more... You couldn't be more metaphorically obvious. He's an empty room, like he's yeah. he's an empty room worth filling. He's on the water. Yeah. He's living in a para, you know,
1: in a paradise that he's trying to find. You know, he's, and man, like lays that in even more because my memory of this scene, I was like, oh, they're standing on a freeway looking over the LA cityscape. That was my memory of it. And I was like, oh, like you know, very Maholland Drive, very La La Land, very Nightcrawler. And then rewatching it before, I was like, no, they're not. They're standing on a cliff. Overlooking the sea, and the most significant intimate moment we've had with Neil is him standing at his window, uh, looking into the sea. In fact, yeah. I was—I started rewatching it before I looked specifically. I started watching it from the beginning and watched that scene. I remember thinking, "What? What's the fuck? What's with the sea? What's the with this?" And but then it kind of—she's even more entrapped. Um, whether man intends it or not, she's even more entrapped to to go with him. Regardless of on top of the fact that he structures his arguments so in such a manipulative way, by the fact that she is, in a metaphorical sense, so much in his space mm. because only at the moment, I mean you don't think about when you think about LA, you don't think of the sea because the sea is so if the world of LA that the film exists in it's so far away. yes, that the only other moment where we think where we hear that sound where we see that kind of landscape is in his private moment, in his private space ostensibly this is an extension of his private space that he's brought her into and now he's saying either you can stay or you can go but i kind of wish you would stay of course she's going to turn around and say yes
0: and and he knows her like for 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 better or worse we know that to say that thing and i you know what's this is what's so great and conflicted and ambivalent about this character and what's so wonderful about him in his construction for man is that we're rooting for him in this dumb scene you know, like, let's be fair. It's, it's not a dumb scene. Sorry, I'm being, like, facetious there. But, like, we're rooting for him in this scene that is really conflicted. Because we actually, mm. we're hoping that he gets away. And so we're hoping that that line of, like, I don't want to do this anymore. And we know that it's coming from a sincere place. But it it is actually the silver bullet. Like, it's the thing mm. that helps dismantle her armor. Even though she's in the foreground, she's larger than him. And she's had this face... God damn it, Amy Brenneman is good in this scene. God damn it, she's great in this movie. Um, you know, for, for we, we I think we've talked floridly about Diane Venora being absolutely stunning as Justine. We've talked about Ashley Jada, Charlene Chehalis just knocking our freaking socks off so many times in this movie. Um, but let's floridly talk about Amy Brenneman in this scene. She just oh. has 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 this armour. It's effortless. He's just throwing this stuff at her and it's just ping, 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 ping. And that thing that that line of, like, I don't know if I want to do any of this without you. It's for a person who's been living alone in a city, toiling late at night, doing a shitty job that they haven't liked, found this fantasy person who feels like they tick all their boxes, is promising this fantasy relationship in a fantasy place to her because essentially New Zealand's a fantasy. You know, Mm. Dan talked about collateral. Like, these people are the physical manifestations of that postcard that jamie fox's driver has for each other like and the movie layers in all this stuff for these two to have it so in this moment that line he, in this moment he means it and mm. we're and we're reading in the we're layering in that fuck that's so
1: manipulative because we can watch her armor just completely shatter the and second he but- says it particularly the way that that man frames that, that as much as yes, our focus is on him because he's the one that's more in focus. He's the one that's speaking. He's the white, like he's wearing like the white of his shirt picks up our like uh, like visually for us more so, but we can still see her. We can see the fact that at the beginning we can see she, it's likely she's not going to go with this Mm. and watch her slowly break down. I mean, it's one of the most, from memory, it's one of the most composed shots in the film. It's more – there's more of a aesthetic control in it than in most of the rest of the film. Most of the film kind of has an immediacy and there's a kind you – know, as much as he, he has complete control of everything in the frame, it feels like the camera is capturing things as they happen and it's not as controlled. This is a moment of complete Visual control where you're reading the text into every everything that you can see.
0: Yeah, I think you're. Um, I think you're. You've nailed it there because just on that preceding scene, and you, you know, you're not being as familiar with heat. I'll, I'll sort of say it, and for folks who aren't as familiar, the the original scene where De Niro goes to his, you know, on the water, assuming in Malibu home, that's you know, out in the ocean, and he does that sort of very. Tactical lean against the wall before we get that up close and personal of his face that is a, it is a direct homage to a painting um, and yeah. I can't remember the painting's name but the artist is Alex Colville um, and the painting is literally exactly that person leaning against the window with a, with a gun in the background and on a draftsman's table. Like it's got mm. like some not, uh, knots in it for measurements. And so I wonder just now, as you were talking, I was just thinking, God, he's so right about the composition. So right, like almost then, and, and particularly what I was thinking the whole time is, and I actually wrote it down, was like, does this scene actually have an artistic influence? Is there a piece of art, especially the mm. composition of the nape of her neck, you know? Mm. And she she is the predominant thing happening in this frame, her, 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 everything's drawn to the way that her face is composed mm. and it's beautifully sort of white and shaded. And, and the, the background echo the, of the street light is just helping to sort of balance um, uh, the lightness of her, fa- her facial features. And she's got great features, you know, prominent brow, big lips. And she's just there, the nape of her neck. You can read the emotions going through her throat as she's breathing. Mm. It's just such a great scene, but I just wonder, yeah, if it's got an artistic
1: influence too. And just thinking now, I I hadn't really thought about this, until now but most of the moments of controlled composition in the film tend to be about neil while vincent is often like the first time you see vincent and vincent in his house with justine it's you know them in bed and then getting up and having breakfast and all that kind of stuff. it's a lot of quick cutting it's a lot of close-ups it's it's very kind of immediate and filmic while a lot of the more beautiful shots in the film tend to lean towards Neil's narrative, which is interesting in the fact that Neil is so is such so obsessed with a fantasy that doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, you're, I think you you as a theatre director, and this is what I talked to you <laughs> this about. This is
1: totally a theatre director no, thing. Definitely. No, but I
0: was just going to say to you is you know I think um, an amazing insight that I received in the hundredth episode, and I'm sorry I have to do this now because this is this show, folks. It has done this to me. Um, Dante Spinotti, who's a cinematographer, um, was on the hundredth episode of One Heat Minute, and in that he told me like explicitly, and I think I'd heard it roundabout or rumored or talked about in his method, but he sort of flat out confirmed it. Is Michael Mann has a very is very aware of the emotional trajectory that he wants to be conveying in every scene of the movie, and so I think that when you look at that, and I'm talking now to a direct, you know, a theater director, if you're looking, if you know the emotional trajectory, you also know the character trajectory, and and you've got to think that Neil McCauley, much more still character, so leans into the power of De Niro, right? He's like all the scenes that are composed and the stillness and really letting him shine in those things are, you know. And it even starts from his reaction shot to Wayne, Wayne Grove's escape, where he's just looking down and there's just this, you know, random train line, streetlights in the distance, a weird ominous tree, you know, back in his apartment. This scene. You know, off with Edie, but Pacino has the frenetic pace because that's what Vincent yep. is. Like he's he's that energy, bang, sharp, on the edge. Where I gotta be, like that that builds into the mythical nature of that character. So like when, mm-hmm. and again, also when they when they collide, that's where Vincent can be still because you know yeah. he's performing something for everyone else. In case in case you didn't wonder, like he's performing uh, what, what what Vincent Hanna is. Like Vincent, you know, when he's big and blustery and crazy. Look at all those scenes. They're all the scenes where he's interrogating people. They're all the scenes where he's intimidating yep. people. They're all the scenes where he's trying to get information. And then when he's with his crew, he's extremely matter-of-fact to the point of like, you know, he checks if Not someone... Not saying anything. Yeah, he doesn't say anything or he
1: points or he's like, mm. how you doing? He's that, like, that moment, how that, you doing? I'll live. And he goes, okay, hangs the phone off. <laughs> that moment in the crime scene in the beginning of the film where he's... When he arrives and just points at things is just, it's so delicious. It's the most <laughs> delicious delivery of what kind of character this is. Oh. In the same sense that Neil just has to be still. He doesn't have to say anything, but it's the degree to which Vincent just has the power to just be like, I'm going to point at this object, and you're going to tell me exactly what I want to know about that object in the exact context that I need it. It's, ah, oh, and, it's, and it's one like, of my favourite moments in the whole film. It's,
0: it is, it's so great. And it's so great because... He gathers all that disparate information. He looks, he, he he essays, you know, essays the scene. He's like, hmm, yep, 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 yep. Does his little appraisal. And then he tells them the narrative that he's picked up from what everything they've told him. Like, he he's, he tells the interconnecting narrative. No, find that in the phone book. We've got to get lucky here. Find out if this guy heard anything, da-da-da-da-da, because... And he's like, because th- these guys are going to mystify us, essentially. Mm. Like, And so... He's doing everything that the stillness sometimes can't convey. They use Pacino's Mm -hmm. natural flair and that energy to be like, oh, he's the guy who can do all the exposition
1: because it's going to be more fun to listen to. Another thing that struck me about in thinking about this particular minute um, is the fact there was, there is, I will admit there is one element of heat that I'm still grappling my head around how I feel about. Um, And, that's Elliot Goldenthal's score. Okay. Um, which I'm... Because I'm a massive film score fanatic. Like obsessively fan. Like there are some films where I mostly will go and see it because I can't wait to hear what the score is. Um, <laughs> What's your I, favourite I, had, score of this year so far? Favourite score of the last six months?
0: Oh,
1: God. That is a hard question. Um, I reckon it might be... It might be Suspiria? Suspiria. That's a good one. Yeah, maybe... I'd yeah. have to really think about it. Suspiria is good. I, I, Bill Street actually. Bill Street. I, would yeah, be I was the other just going
0: to say Nick Patel's Bill Street score is out of control.
1: How, how it did not win the Oscar. Let's just move is on. Hey hey hey.
0: That, hey Dan. Let's just let's just remind everyone. I'm still not of the first
1: man not getting nominated. That
0: no, just that no, just in 1996, sucks. Heat, which has Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Michael Mann directing, Art Linson producing has casting by Bonnie Timmerman, cinematography by Dante Spinotti, has Dove Honig and Pasquale Buber as the principal editors, and, and, and there are other editors on the film, but those two guys were the, the main two, did not get a single nomination. No technical, no sound editing, no editing, no score, nothing. Nada. <laughs> not a nomination so not- for acting. It's a seventy speaking role movie.
1: So it's 1995's Zodiac, then 100%, 100%. the film is better than most, and no one. Because what was 90? What else is 95? 95 is that the Pulp That's Fiction? The no, no, it's the Braveheart year. Oh, that makes it even worse. <laughs> Braveheart is not a bad film, but it's not quite to the level of this. Um, but the one thing that I noticed with this particular moment is that the score is absent. And one mm-hmm. of the things I, I find problematic about Golden Thor score is, I you know I don't I don't. Have a problem with a score that's not leading you to how you're supposed to feel about it. I often find that's a lot more useful. Mm. But I always, there were times where I would go, particularly, I remember with the heist at the beginning, that I go, I don't know why this is here. There's a lot of moments in Heat with music where I go, I feel like this music is here because it feels like it has to be here, you not know, because it needs to be here. And oftentimes that threatens to rob it of moments of real potency. The beauty of this, on top of the fact that man slows down, lets it sit makes our point of focus really clear gives us a very composed shot to look to take in he also removes sound all we hear is the sound of birds the sound of the sea the sound of traffic allowing us to re- like the, it's almost like the the film is holding its breath for a moment yes yeah. it's had its Mo- it's had its, mo- its burst with the Ralph scene. It's about to have a massive sharp intake of breath in the next scene with Chris in the car um, with Ashley Judd at the balcony. But it's almost as, as the um, it's almost as if the film is just having a moment of just going, what like it's this is, from this point, this is the cr- like this is the proper crisis point where we're never where whatever decision she makes at this point, the film is going towards an inevitable end and we can't stop it and the ho- and it's we're waiting to see what is going to because happen. Because it takes
0: a whole different tone. Like, if you just think of what the consequences are if she says no, then we 100% know he's going for Wangro. Yeah. And he's going to be aggressive and there are no, there's no stakes for him to go to Wangro. So okay. that this scene is so essential in the emotional makeup, especially because of what it leads us to. It actually gives yep. us something to care about. You know, we're not... We're not Neil walking through that hotel.
1: We're Edie in the car. Is he yeah. going to fucking get out alive? Like we are literally mm. her in the car, waiting for that to happen. And it and it makes the moment because you because there is the part of you that man like man constructs the film in a way that you go, you know that Neil has done something wrong. You know that he's not a good person, but you do kind of want to get him, see him get away, and you know that he's manipulating this woman. But there might be a possibility this fantasy might work. And then there's the moment in the car, like, I'm jumping minutes, so I'm sorry to whoever gets to this minute later. But it's the moment where John Voight's character calls him and says, I know you wanted to know this, make do with this information what you will, but this is where he is. And uh, the, th- the m- thing that stuck in my head after that is after he has that phone call, he starts to smile. And you think the smile is going, and it lo- you can see the build, you can see he's building towards a decision, a realisation of catharsis and clarity where he knows I know exactly what I'm going to do and it's all going to be fine and it's all going to work and you go great he's decided he's not going to go after Wangro they're going to get to the airport they're going to fly away and just as that smile reaches its Zenith he turns the car around and goes after Wangro and you just go no that, that because of the potency of this moment that moment becomes so much more devastating and it's so clear they're not going to get out of this and also the fantasy doesn't matter to him. Like, the fantasy doesn't... He's built this idea of saying, I'm going to go away with you, we're going to live together, we're going to be safe, it's going to be fine, but he can't let go of the thing that holds him to the ground, which is you know, his sociopathy, the fact that he is born and bred to have this life. And at the last second, when he could just get away, he doesn't. And that moment is bought by this moment. By this moment of going, there's a a possibility we've seen him being vulnerable and that vulnerability seems so real. And it's full of so much potential that the film may get, he may get away with this. But then when he, when he makes the decision to not, it becomes all the more devastating. I know that's probably weight reading way too much into, Bob and you're probably having a fart or something. <laughs> we are 134 minutes into a podcast
0: where we've examined every single minute at this point. That is absolutely not too much. And I think oh. that is the perfect moment for us to exit because the lovely Eloise Ross, the incredible... Matt Zolozitz, and the awesome Carly Severn have got minutes 146, 47, and 48 that encompass
1: that exact little arc. So you are Don't leading... Tell, tell them not to listen to this. Don't <laughs> listen to the new guy with his stupid <laughs>
0: opinions. No, I think it feeds perfectly because you're right. I think that what is, what is getting exponentially more satisfying about this podcast for me as a participant as much as the host um is talking about these moments and being really able to contextualize them in the picture of the film to say you know when we're scrutinizing them the reason they live and die is so because of how they've what cards we have been dealt before like how are, scenes are going to be paid off and then also how much the tra- there's this tragic air that's hovering around this this whole corridor of this movie right now. Um, it's just how much it's laying in these foundations that you know are just going to be exploded and be kicked out
1: from under us. So And this really is the point in the film where it stops being about the mechanisms of the narrative and starts becoming properly about the the completion of the character arcs. It's about from here onwards, yes the story is still incredibly fascinating and beautifully plotted and beautifully structured, but from this point it all of the heists all of the all of the all of the technical cleverness doesn't matter because it's been the it's earning its right to have this incredibly complex ambiguous beautiful emotional ending like this is the point i think where it really cements the earning of that at the end
0: well we're gonna earn this <laughs> daniel Lamon, thank you so much for being a part of one Heat minute this has been an absolute pleasure Thank you. I've had a blast. See? Look, guys, if um, if you uh, want to follow uh, Dan, the best place is, it literally is at Daniel Lammon on Twitter, D A N I E L L A M I N. Dan, is there anywhere else they want to find you they can
1: seek you out other than maketheswitch.com.au? No, they're the two best places. Um, yeah, check us out on the website. For all of our reviews. I've got heaps of reviews coming up this week, so you'll probably find most of the most of them at the moment in me. But yeah, and Twitter's the other best I, place I will, to uh, eat my ramblings.
0: I'll link both Dan's Twitter and also um, a link to his author page on make switch so you guys can check out any of his stuff. This has been an absolute pleasure, and to talk to someone for nearly an hour who just saw heat like a few days ago is so uh, why I love this show. Guys, thank you so much for listening and being a part of it. Um it is the hundred and thirty-fourth minute, as I said, and we have so many more episodes and great guests um to chat with you um along the way. But I've been Blake Howard, your host. Thank you, guys Franklin, for our web design. Mr. Paul Davies for our theme, and we'll catch you on another episode of One Eat Minute just around the corner, and hopefully not cutting off the middle of a beautiful arc of a scene for you guys (laughs) again. Uh, if, If it's your first episode listening, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you around soon.